the topic that I have chosen for myself. Excuse yourself. Perfect, I'm sorry. Uh, I am an engineer uh, who decided that I wanted to pursue my calling. So uh, for the last couple of two years actually, I've been uh, traditionally stu uh, studying Sanskrit, uh, the Shastras, Vedanta and Yakarana in particular, in a traditional curricula. Uh, so I hope I can bring in both aspects of uh, my ground. So uh, the topic that I have chosen for myself is uh, Ramayana, Volume 2, Introduction to Ayutthaya Kanda. Let me just first say that I have not dealt with uh, Sheldon Pollock's translation of the Ayutthaya Kanda. I have restricted myself to the first few pages that occur as its introduction. Uh, this, this is an important piece of writing because it sets the tone for what is to follow tells the reader how he must look at the characters, how he must look at the story, and what he can or cannot take away from it. So without further delay, I will get into the paper. Pollock uh, has discussed this issue in 10 distinct categories. This might give you a brief idea of the sort of issues that have been discussed. Prelude to the Ayodhya Kanda synopsis of the Ayutthaya the central issues, a problem of narrative and its significance, the philosophy, aesthetic and literary historical considerations, the characters, the women of the Ayutthaya Dasharatha and Rama. Because of the time constraint, I will not be able to dwell on each of the ten categories, so I will discuss only the controversial claims that he has made in this paper. There were so many of them that I did not know how to discuss it in such a short time frame. So what I did was to uh, broadly classify them into four. ideas of this paper can be traced back to a basic misunderstanding or a misrepresentation of one of these four concepts. So if these are addressed to, then most of the red flags of this paper would stand effectively refuted. So let us look into each one of it, Ramana, history or a myth. In his prelude to the Ayutthaya Kanda, Pollock says that the name Ayutthaya Kanda is a very appropriate one, for in stark contrast to the rest of the book, um, this action here takes place in the city of Ayutthaya. According to Pollock, major urban cities of Aryan India came into existence in about 700 BC and became a focus of immediate literary interest for the epic poets. In contrast, Villages were completely ignored by them, and forests were, to them, zones of mystery where supernatural forces came into play. So for Pollock then, the Ayodhya Kanda has a touch of reality to its narration, while the rest is simply fantastic. He writes, In the Aranya Kanda, we move abruptly into the enchanted realm of the forests, peopled by mighty sages, 
stepful supernatural monsters and flying monkeys who can change their shapes and sizes at will and who speak elegant Sanskrit. Elsewhere, he theorizes that such a romantic conception of South India was perhaps possible because the author was unfamiliar with South India. He writes, the poet knows nothing about the Deccan beyond the fact that Brahmin hermitages are to be found there. Otherwise, it is a region haunted by the monsters and fabulous beings with which an Indian imagination would people an unknown land. So, according to Pollock, Valmiki perhaps knew of an island kingdom, real or otherwise, lying off the coast of Indian mainland and no more. If this be the case, then the question of the historicity of the Ramayana would simply be absurd. This is indeed the stand that Pollock takes. He writes, it is entirely futile and wrong-headed to identify historical evidence for what is a kind of elaborate fairy tale, for in doing so we are led away from a true understanding of the work. Now one may say that this is one way of looking at the epic poem. But I think that it is an incorrect way of looking at the epic poem. There have been scholars who have tried to identify historical evidence for the incidents of the Ramayana, and there are others who have refuted it. So whether the Ramayana took place on a historical plane or not, there is value, as tradition has shown, in accepting it as a truth. The person that we can turn to at this juncture is, I think, Ananda K. Kumaraswamy, one of the world's greatest philosophers in the recent decades. He also saw the epic as a myth, but to him, the myth was truer, far truer than history. He writes, it must be remembered that the myth is a symbol, a representation of the reality that underlies all fact, but never itself becomes a fact. I can and do believe in the myth, far more profoundly than in any historical event which may or may not have happened. This is simply one pointer, the second of the red flags in the kingship. This I have dealt with in two parts. The first is transfer of power. Epic poems like the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, Harivamsha, etc. deal with a wide range of issues. Yet, at their core, Pollock says, lies a struggle among brothers for the succession of the hereditary throne. In Mahabharata, for example, is a struggle between Yudhishthira and Duryodhana, Harivamsha between Krishna and Kamsa, Vihavna Lopakhyana, in which King Nala is deposed from the throne by his brother, etc. While the epic poems of all traditions seem excessively interested in warriors and heroic themes, the Indian epic tradition, he says, differs in the fact that it occupies itself with the problem of kingship itself, the acquisition, maintenance and execution of royal power, the legitimacy of succession, the predicament of transferring hereditary power within a royal dynasty. So he asks himself, why? Why were Indian poets interested in this particular subject? And he proposes a few answers. He says, it is improbable that exclusive royal dynasties existed in the Vedic period. There are no accounts of struggle for power or for the succession of throne within 
families. That is not a word that carries the connotation of royal family, so it must be a later development. But by the time of the Ramayana, he says, the welfare of the state had come to depend exclusively on the king, and political power had become entirely concentrated in the hands of royalty. And for the first time, he says, it became a practice to transfer royal power through heredity. So naturally, this came with complications of its own, which he describes, if heredity power could not be transferred smoothly, the consequences could be disastrous. The fragmentation of the state among rival humans or be a dangerous interregnum entailing redistribution of power and liability to external attack. So basically, the epic poets found it useful to occupy themselves with the hot burning issue of the day. In the earlier tradition, he says, there was only one way to resolve this difficulty, that of armed combat. Dissatisfied with this answer, he says that Pollock suggested another solution to the problem, that of submission to hierarchy. For civilized society, the poet inculcates by positive precept and negative example and with a sometimes numbing insistence a powerful new code of conduct, hierarchically ordered unqualified submission. So according to him, according to this, the only way to obviate deadly antagonism within family members was by the doctrine of unqualified submission of the younger to the elder prince, the eldest to the father, and so on. So by setting forth the example of Bharata, who chose to bow before his brother and not contest the throne, Palmiki, he says, made the first literary attempt to moralize the exercise of political power. So you see, we are looking at how Pollock is looking at how Palmiki tweaked the basic storyline or the characters to suit his purposes. The second part of this problem is spiritual authority and temporal power. In another context, a very different context, he says that kingship as an institution has no authority or legitimacy of its own. It is dependent on the uneasy relationship between the king and the Brahmin. The Brahmin's monopoly of the source of authority and legitimization leaves the king with mere power and effectively bars kingship from developing its full potential as the central regulating force. This he discusses in the context of Rama's character. He says that in the Indian tradition, there has always been a dichotomy of power. While the Kshatriyas ruled their kingdom, they were in turn ruled by the Brahmins. While power lay in their hands, its legitimization was always in the hands of the Brahmins. This he calls a potentially incapacitating bifurcation. And according to him, Valmiki modeled Rama as a solution to this problem. So in Rama's character, we are supposed to get a solution for this problem. According to Pollock, Rama, despite being a Kshatriya, did not live by the code of the Kshatriyas. To Rama, the Kshatriya code of conduct was debased, vicious, covetous, and one that evil men observed. So, according to Pollock, for Rama, dharma was associated with only truth, righteousness, and non-violence. He writes, Rama made his Kshatriya dharma to absorb Brahmanical dharma 
and its legitimizing ethics, non-violence, and spirituality. In this way, Kshatriya could become self-legitimizing and the full potential of kingship could be activated at last. I think perhaps Pollock saw that this was not in keeping with the text, so he also added that the hierarchical subordination that Rama and the text explicitly upholds is implicitly opposed by his spiritual commitment. Now this is a serious start. Uh, I think the answer again can be found in Kumaraswami who said, the absolute monarchies of the Orient are not comparable to that of France immediately before the revolution. The normal Oriental monarchy is really a theocracy in which the king's position is that of an executor who may do only what ought to be done and is a servant of justice, dharma, of which he is not himself the author. The whole prosperity of the state depends upon the king's virtue, just as for Aristotle, the monarch who rules in his own interest is not a king but a tyrant and may be removed like a mad dog. The third of the red flags is caste system. We saw how Pollock wrote that Valmiki had an instruction to the Kshatriya kings, submit to hierarchy. So this instruction was not limited to the Kshatriya class alone, it was addressed to the society at large. So by modeling a protagonist whose status was that of absolute heteronomy, Pollock says that Valmiki glorified its values and instructed the society to follow suit. So Valmiki showed the society to submit on the one hand to the will of the elders and on the other to the members of the hierarchical loftier castes. Also, he showed women to submit fully to their husbands, sons and fathers and thus laid the foundation of a paternalistic society. Now this is an issue that merits a seminar on its own I think because this is one of the areas which is most targeted about the Indian system. Let me just say that India's traditional social order is not a random irrational development. No institution is. <coughs> Institutions represent an application of a body of principles to contingent circumstances and must be judged accordingly. If an institution is conducive to the achievement of whatever it holds as the ultimate ends of life, then that institution is good, otherwise it is not. Men are too ready to attack an unfamiliar institution without first asking what its intentions are and whether those intentions are truly unworthy of pursuit. India's traditional social order too is imitative of a body of metaphysical doctrines that are understood to have been revealed and the truth of which is taken for granted. It was every man's way to achieve perfection. It is a system that has been entirely misunderstood in the recent decades and it is the responsibility of traditional scholars to draw a complete irrefutable picture of its principles. The last of the red flags is fate. In the question of fate versus free will, there is, according to Pollock, absolutely no place in the Indian scheme of things for free will or Purusha Payatna. Fate plays a crucial role in the epic poetry of all traditions. Yet he says that in every tradition or every tradition conceives of this concept differently. Achilles, for example, may be 
forced to choose between a short life of heroic glory or a long, obscure existence, but the choice, he says, is his. So, such a fate carries justice, Pollock says, because he can choose to suffer or to not. The characters of the Ramayana, on the other hand, are denied of all choice. They must suffer their plight in silent agony and cannot truly comprehend the cause of it. They are told that they have erred in a former life, but they cannot cognize it. It is not cognizable in any way. He writes, in the Ayodhya Kanda, man is prohibited from making his destiny. The fate of Rama and others is prepared for them at some plane beyond their intervention or even comprehension. There is only a mechanical quality to the course of human affairs, regulated only by some dark, dumb force that turns the handle of this world. In the poem too, he says, there are characters like Lakshmana or Jagan who are trying to vent their anguish and argue for the cause of free will, but Pollock says that this is only a pretext for Rama to establish his uncompromising position on suppression of free, free will or individual will. In other epic poems too, like the Mahabharata, he says that there are only the antagonists like Duryodhana or Karna articulating the free will position. Commentators too, he says, take great pain in establishing that this is the position of only the Lokayata or the materialists. So in conclusion, fate in the Indian tradition is less justice and more accidental and there is no place for free will or Purusha Prayatna in the Indian scheme of things. Now these are difficult questions and difficult answers to give. I don't think there can be a conversation without first discussing or establishing the first principles of Indian thought and uh, concepts like self-effacement or the caste system. These are not to be understood without a good explanation of our orthodox view. So the only solution that I can propose is that the traditional orthodox view and the first principles of Indian thought must be effectively described to refute these issues. This is